This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Eves. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and thank you all for returning for another episode where we become better habitat managers. We have a good one for you here tonight, guys. We have Hunter Pruitt from the National Wildlife Cooperative. So a pretty interesting podcast. We talk about all things cooperative-based. I know we talked about what a cooperative is uh, way back with Tony Smith um, and the 700 Club. If you guys go back and look for Tony Smith, I know we had him on there. We talked about cooperatives and the advantages. But we dive into it deep here. We talk about some research and projects that the National Wildlife Cooperative is working on now. We talk about Hunter's background with the QDMA and how he came to where he is today within this organization. And then we talk about how a cooperative can benefit you as a property owner or landowner, hunter, et cetera, in your neighborhood. And we get into the nitty-gritty on that stuff as well. Very great episode. Hunter is an awesome guy, and uh, I think you guys are really going to like this. So stay tuned. We have Hunter Pruitt from the National Wildlife Cooperative coming up next. Now, I want to say thank you to all the listeners who have been leaving us great iTunes reviews on the Apple Podcast app. I am sending out decals by the week to you guys. I just found a couple more of you and shipping those decals out now. You get a free 5-inch Habitat Podcast decal. If you leave us a great 5-star review and write something nice, leave your name, I'll find you and send you a review. If you haven't gotten our decal, go to our group, our new group on Habitat podcast Facebook page is called Habitat Chat. That's the name of our group under the Habitat Podcast Facebook page. 
there's almost a thousand members in that group already, like 985 already. Um, and we're going to put a post. Actually, there already is a post on there, the very top post. If you've left us, left us a review and you can't find um, me or I can't find you, that's the best way to get a hold of us. Give me your address. I'll send you your free decal for your awesome review. And it's been working out great. So thank you guys so much for doing that. We did just launch another Habitat journal post up at HabitatPodcast.com. Five winter habitat tips. So check us out at HabitatPodcast.com. Go over to the Habitat journal, and you'll see a nice new write-up there on five things you could be doing right now in the woods. Some tasks you could be knocking off your list and checking them off, you know, checking the box off on a couple winter habitat projects. Um, we also have our land plan consulting services up there. We've been nailing those things recently. We have a bunch of those coming in, and, and we just helped the guy uh, out in Pennsylvania. I'm sorry, yeah, out in PA. We have Marl out in PA, and then we have um, another one out in Minnesota, New Hampshire, and Ohio we're working on right now as well. So if you guys are interested in some help from us on your land you know, just to get started or maybe you have questions, you're, you're in the middle of your habitat plan, you're wondering what to do next, give us a call. We can help. we got a couple of different services we can offer to get you pointed in the right direction, and that way you're not sitting here, you know, five, ten years down the road going, shoot, I did this backwards. I wish I would have had some advice up front. Um, we're here to help. You know, we, we do it just, for, just to help you guys, and, you know, we love this stuff. We nerd out on this stuff, and we really – um, like your feedback and, and hearing from you guys on what you're working on. So that's all at HabitatPodcast.com, along with, you know, all of our gear. Got some brand-new hoodies up there. Um, we have our American Flag USA uh, Habitat Podcast hoodie up there, as well as our original HP logo hoodie, both brand-new items we added this week. You know, everything you need to know is at HabitatPodcast.com, and there's a link in the show notes to this episode right below you. If you scroll down, you can find the link right to our website and check us out there. Lots of great stuff coming up there all the time. Now, I want to talk to you guys about Morse Nursery. So it's getting pretty close to wrapping up orders for Morse. If you have anything you want to get on order this year, I would suggest calling them tomorrow, today, uh, whenever you can, because we all start ordering for Morse back in, like, you know, October, November. So, uh, But there's one thing I want to show on here. It is the... Uh, deer bedding and screening package. It's a tree package that Morse put together, and um, it's on their website at morsenursery.com. It has uh, this, let's see, this kit includes two thicket crab apples, two plum thickets, two black chokeberries, two tamaracks, two dogwoods, and ten survival kits. That's a tree tube, a weed mat, fertilizer, and a one-year guarantee. Now, I don't know if everybody offers a one-year guarantee on their trees, but if you buy the survival kits in this kit, you get a guarantee on your trees. And trust me, the percentage of trees I've had live in my random plantings over the, you know, before I found Morse, I'm, I could have used a few guarantees. So check out the one-year guarantee. Check this all out at morsenursery.com. Frank Brock, he's been on a previous episode. Charlie Morse has been on previous episodes. Everything you want to know about trees, guys, we have a lot of it covered in our in our older episodes. So be sure to look up Morse Nursery and uh, check out Frank Brock, and, and be sure to get your orders in soon. We do have a podcast code for listeners. It is Habitat 10. It's 10% off your tree order and free shipping. So we appreciate you guys supporting us there. Thank you very much. And, um, you know, 
We have to also thank our Packer Max Salta Packers, Hunt Wise, Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Habitat Hook, and last but not least, Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction. All right, guys, enough for me. Let's get right to the good stuff, which is why y'all showed up. Hunter Pruitt and the National Wildlife Cooperative. All right, Hunter. We are live, my friend. We have Hunter Pruitt from the National Wildlife Cooperative here online tonight. How are you doing tonight, sir? Good. How are you, Jared? Good. Good. It's a little chilly here in the uh, dungeon podcast studio, but I have a couple things keeping me warm, including a space heater. Doing all right. Um, it's not so bad down by you, though, from what I understand. Yeah, no, not not too bad down this way. You go a little north of us up into Tennessee, and it gets a little bit chilly, but uh, I'm currently down here in uh, South Georgia, and it's definitely uh, a little bit warmer. I think we were in the mid-70s <laughs> today, so a little a little bit different, maybe 70 degrees different than where you're at up there. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're already seeing daffodils blooming and uh, the first signs of spring down this way, so it's it's coming up your way here here soon. Oh, man, that's great news. I appreciate that. And, uh, Brian, you're you're chilly as well, as I understand it, correct? Yeah, I don't think our temps are quite as low as yours, but it's cold. Snow's been piling up, and we haven't had any decent days to melt any of the stuff that's come in the last week or two. So we're getting buried here little by little. But hanging in there. Good. Good to hear. I think uh, I think talking to – Another gentleman from Georgia is, is perfect this time of year, you know. So I know I think the last guy we talked to from Georgia was probably, what, LTJ, you think? Lindsey Thomas? Yeah, I think so. And um, Mark Mark Buxton, way back, we had him on. Was he from uh, Alabama? I'd have to look that up. Yeah, that's a good question. I know he does a lot of work in Alabama. It might be Georgia boy as well, but either way, it's good to have you on, Hunter. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We'd like to start this out with you painting a picture of who you are, where you're from, your history growing up. I know you're not as old as uh, us old farts, but, you know, I know you can shed some light here and, and tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from. Yeah, well, thanks, Jared and Brian, for having me on. I, I appreciate it. And, yeah, as, as you said, I'm a Georgia, Georgia boy through and through, grew up in Georgia, born in Georgia. Um Lived here my entire life. I uh, went to the University of Georgia from undergrad and my master's in wildlife. So, like I, like you said, Georgia through and through and uh, still still reside here to this day. But that doesn't mean I hadn't traveled quite a bit. I, I currently uh, work for a, a forest research as a forest research coordinator um, with a pretty large uh, consulting firm that does research for pine tree genetics. So we travel from Virginia to Texas. And but just a little bit of a background about myself, you know, kind of the habitat side of things, hunting and and how I got into all of it, you know, grew up in northwest Georgia, kind of an hour above Atlanta, an hour below Chattanooga, and uh, really got involved when I was when I was younger, probably in middle school. I, I actually, I think I've said this before, but it's a, it's a pretty cool story. I, I got a magazine in the mail, uh, well, in, not in the mail, but through my, my father, um, who went to a meeting at a, a big hunting club in middle Georgia. It was a magazine back in, this would have been 2007 probably, early 2000, 2006, um, and it was quality whitetails uh, from the QDMA back then, and brought it home. And I was riding to school, and uh, it was just sitting out on the on the counter that morning. And picked it up, and I saw that everybody in that magazine who was writing articles for them at the time was a wildlife biologist. 
And even at that young age, I was like, that's something I could do. I mean, I had been hunting with my dad from, you know, from a young age and that time I was, you know, could walk pretty much. And, and I was like, that, that'd be really cool. And so I, I sent an email out to the founder of the, of the QDMA at the time, you know, founder of the QDMA. And at the time, this Joe Hamilton sent an email and he answered back. And I said, hey, you know, I would love to be a wildlife biologist. You know, what, where do I need to go for this? Like, I've never even heard of this. Um, and I think I was in seventh grade at the time. And he responded and said, you know, it's, it's admirable to uh, be thinking about this at such a young age. You know, you definitely need a background in, you know, X, Y, and Z, whether that's, you know, natural resources and uh, mathematics and, you know, all the above. And so I, so I did that and kind of fell off for a few years. And I, I got back involved with the QDMA when I was in high school, um, started going over there to their headquarters in Athens and, you know, kind of a, a perfect marriage there with me wanting to go to the University of Georgia because their headquarters was there next to the, the university. And um, started going into the office, volunteering my time, freshman year, um, getting a note by the office. And one thing led to another, got offered a job there as an intern, um, sweeping floors in the, in the back or aging jawbones for hunting clubs that were sending them in, whatever I could do just to, to learn more. And eventually uh, got hired on part-time and worked there for five years um, through my, my undergrad, my master's. So I uh, worked there with uh, a lot of different programs. Worked with, like you said, Lindsey Thomas, helped him out some with things he needed or um, – helped the, the youth program there that used to be the Rack Pack and kind of like Jake's there with NWTF and helped with uh, landowner events, co-op events, um, anything under the sun that they said, you know, hey, go do this. I was willing to go do it and brought Adam Bushytail to do it. So went, went and did it and uh, did my master's. That's how we got the – I did my master's at UGA and a lot of the um, the research there for them came through the Fish and Wildlife Service and QDMA to do look at co-ops. And so I – had experience forming a co-op at my parents' house when I was younger and uh, with our neighboring landowners. Um, took that and kind of fit, fit the mold for what they were looking for there. Did the research, and, and now I got hired on you know, professionally to, as a research coordinator. But definitely that's just kind of the, from A to Z, um, kind of my background. But from a hunting and habitat standpoint, you know, I've been doing that since I was young. Um, and, and with my involvement with the QDMA, definitely spurred the habitat management side of things. But that's a, a, an A to Z rundown there. So uh, I know it's a lot, but th- there's my background. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. So did you uh, did you know the habitat coordinator from up here in Michigan then? Do you know uh, her name was Anna Mitterling and then got transferred to Morgan Warda, Morgan McCarthy Warda? Did you yeah, know her? Yeah, so uh, I knew of Anna, and Anna was with the QDMA at the time, so I knew her. I didn't know her well because we would just get together with uh, kind of national convention type things just because of, of, you know, geographical di- distance and, and things of that nature. But then I know Morgan very well. And Morgan's actually written a few articles um, for the National Wildlife Cooperative website. So, uh, you know, pulling pulling her into that to be able to help uh, with, that, with the National Wildlife Cooperative. But, yeah, so um, she, I know I know both of, them, both of them well, but definitely Morgan more so than, than Anna. No, that's awesome. That's why I figured it'd be awesome to have you on here. I know uh, I'm in a cooperative where my property is, um, and and like you know, you being on a national level, or at least trying to get us all on a national level is is super important. And uh, you know, people like Morgan and a great gals who help do a lot here in Michigan. Um, so that's why you know when you and I started talking and Brian, it just it rang true to to get you on here and, and spread the message. So uh, great story, great, you know, history with you at, at QDMA and, and uh, you know, starting real young. That's awesome. I wish uh, I had that direction when I was your age, seventh grade. That's pretty no cool. Um, 
And, you know, but we're here now, so yep. let's talk about what's next. Uh, so give us a history on the on the National Wildlife Cooperative, how that came to be. Yeah, guys, well, I appreciate you having me on for that. Uh, you know, I want to kind of spread the message there for the National Wildlife Cooperative. We, you know, with the research uh, that I did as a, as a master's student, we, we quickly realized that um, even from a fish and wildlife standpoint, QDMA standpoint, um, and, and these individual, you know, state agencies that, that are working, like you said, you know, Morgan's in, in Missouri, but the QDMA had people in, in uh, or she's in Michigan, and we have, they have people in Missouri, and, and then, you know, biologists in, in New York, and then myself working with Georgia Cooperative. So there was really no coordination between the states. And then you have private land programs in each state, and they're all, you know, they work somewhat regionally. Um, so you have uh, some of the southeast that work together, some of the Midwest, but, you know, it's kind of broad scale, not really with this cooperative focus um, or focus on cooperatives. And uh, so really we realized quickly, like I said, that there was no national database for cooperatives. So it was, it was just kind of trying to pull teeth of, you know, this person knows this person through this person, and there's this co-op functioning on this side of the state that, that is just doing their own thing. Um, and, and it was all word of mouth and, and – uh, we were doing good to get 45 co-ops in five states for this research, and we quickly we realized that hey, if if we're able to find 45 um, in five states, there's got to be hundreds of these things across the landscape in other states that were not part of the research, and they are operating on their own. They are not um, affiliated in a lot of cases with the state DNR. Sometimes it's with a private, you know, like for example in Michigan, you're with MUCC sometimes. Um, and it might not be with the DNR um, in that state. So we said, well, why don't we, you know, take what we learned from this research as the biggest limiting factor um, for cooperatives and cooperative success on a national level and implement something that can actually address that. Um, and, and that can be across species. So the National Wildlife Cooperative, you know, even though a lot of these cooperatives are focused on deer management, is not just for deer. It's for pheasants, for quail, for upland birds like turkeys, for uh, you know, other other game species in it, and in the future can be, you know, broadened to that if you go, you know, further out west in the western U.S., but for right now, we're sticking to kind of the, the megafauna uh, of the east, but uh, yeah, so the idea of the National Wildlife Cooperative is to provide wildlife management cooperatives a national platform uh, to, connect with, to connect to connect your co-op um, to other co-ops across the nation and then document it and, and which really provides a documentation of the conservation benefit that cooperatives provide wildlife across the U.S. You know, there's, you know, we had over 200,000 acres in four states documented within cooperatives, and these these cooperatives range. I think the average cooperative range was 5,000 acres, um, and if you just look at that on a national landscape, it's going undocumented. And so this is a way to document it and to uh, provide a voice for cooperatives and for the the amazing management they're doing. Um, in a way that has not been done before. So, in a sense, that's what we're looking at, uh, and what the National Wildlife Cooperative is, and why it was formed. That sounds awesome. And I guess before we really dive into this further, um, I want to understand, I guess, like exactly how you started this, and and how it came to be from like the, the very basis of it like or the first couple steps you took but before that we should hit before we get too far in what is the cooperative um for anybody who doesn't know who might be a new listener who hasn't been tracking with us for a while let's hear what a cooperative is and how it can benefit you um 
I know we kind of talk about pros and cons later on, but I want to, I want just the definition real quick on from uh, from Hunter Pruitt here. Yeah, so it's it's just multiple private landowners working together for a common management goal. Um, that could be, you know, it could be a habitat management cooperative that focuses on prescribed fire. It could be a, a QDM cooperative that pro, that uh, focuses on uh, quality deer management, and that deer management is their main goal. And it, it could be a pheasant cooperative. So just in, in general, a, co- a cooperative is defined as multiple private landowners working together for a, a common, uh, you know, conservation goal when it comes to these cooperatives. Um, so that's what I would, you know, it, it could be two landowners working together, and that's in our research that was, you know, considered a cooperative because it's multiple co- multiple landowners. It could be, you know, 55 different landowners working together. Um, so there's a range. There's no, there's no one-size-fits-all kind of cookie-cutter definition. But in a sense, it is um, – Basic at its most basic level defined as multiple landowners working together for the common management goal. So, Hunter, give us a little background on the National Wildlife Cooperative. How did that get started? So, the National Wildlife Cooperative it was a is a is a it acts as a joint cooperative effort. So, it's really not um, you know there's no paid there's no paid employees. It is a, a cooperative effort across the industry with different um, entities and people that are volunteering their time, their, their knowledge, and are creating information for cooperatives. And at the very basic level, um, honestly, came from, like I said, the research saying, you know, here's what the biggest limiting factor is for, for these cooperatives um, that we're trying to, to look at. And I said, you know, we need to really look at this and try to figure out a way um, to to bring them together on a national scale. Uh, so I sat down with uh, some of the guys over at Land and Legacy, um, Stephen Schwartz, which is uh, with Hortonstein Ranch Company out in Texas, and some other people that I within the industry that that I, I used just kind of as a guide um, to create this this uh, organization. And you know that was one of the things we really wanted to push was like you know we we're not trying to um, raise funds through you know banquets. We're not trying to, we are literally trying to streamline this so that we can provide information to the cooperatives to make the most bang for the buck that we uh, were able to, to, to raise through donations, through uh, personal funds, through times donated, um, and in a sense mirror the National Wildlife Cooperative on how a, a formal wildlife cooperative on the landscape works which is people working together for the common, the common good and the common goal of wildlife conservation and whatever that form may be that they're interested in. So, so from a, like, try to answer your question, um, you know, I sat down with that group and, you know, kind of helped spearhead this idea um, to really kind of flesh it out. Um, it was about two years in the making. So I, I got done with my master's research in 2018 and we, kind of worked diligently behind the scenes for two years uh, before it got launched in late 2020 um, to to get the legwork and, and kind of the framing of this together and, and really nail down how we wanted it to look. And, and obviously it's going to uh, morph as it grows and as it provides more and we see what cooperatives, you know, need. Um, and, and maybe that's different than what we currently provide to, a, to an extent. But um, just as any good organization, if you're not, if you're not, you know, changing, or if you're stagnant, you're dying. So we're going to continue to, to, to morph that um, in a way that, that better serves cooperatives. Okay. So did you say that it's just sort of taking flight here at the end of 2020? Did I hear you right? 
Yeah, so we, we formally launched in the end of July of 2020. Um, the word really got out there about deer season, so September, October. Um, and that would be when I would say, you know, we've it's probably been around for about, you know, six months at this point. Okay, great. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have you on and, and help you get the word out even further and uh, looking forward to helping you guys grow this thing. Well, we appreciate it. We, like I said, we, it's, it's kind of a grassroots effort, um, you know, kind of taking the best of what, you know, conservation has to offer and put it into a, a national platform um, and, and kind of mold it in that, in that way. So walk us through some of the main goals what you guys are trying to accomplish, and then uh, any any side benefits, too, if you want to cover anything that's that's uh, beyond the scope of the main goals that you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, so so that's a great question. The goals, the main goal is to provide cooperatives with the tailored information on how to start, how to maintain, and then grow the cooperatives they're in. So at the same time, we also want to measure the benefit through documenting them. So our first main goal is just simply to provide tailored information to them that they may not get, or they would have to get from several other sources. So, you know, you may get one article in Quality Whitetails about cooperatives. You may get one in, in uh, you know, Field in the Stream. You may get one in, um, you know, Quell Forever. You may get one in all these different articles, but you'd have to be a member of all those different organizations. So our idea is to provide tailored information about cooperatives in whatever form that may be. So if you're interested in, you know, how would a cooperative impact my deer management? You know, there's an article for that. How does does uh, how does this form how does this practice? You know, let's say it's prescribed fire affect um, affect my management on a, a cooperative basis. How could that cooperative affect that? You know, better better uh, help us get that practice out there on the landscape and just across the entire gamut of of, of uh, wildlife conservation, wildlife management. How do cooperatives fit in? And in that way, we're highlighting the importance of cooperatives. So I guess from a goal standpoint, it really is to, to document them. Because right now, and that, like I said, the biggest hurdle we had was trying to figure out where these cooperatives were. It was you had, somebody had to know somebody that knew somebody to figure out, you know, hey, right. down the road is, is in a cooperative. And, and not every state is as, um, you know, and Jerry can probably talk about this, but not every state has the infrastructure that Mich- Michigan does. Sure. And, you know, for example, you know, in Georgia, there was up until last year, there was no, you know, really good DMAP program in the state. So it's like, you know, every state's at a different point. Every DNR is a different point, And then, you know, every conservation organization is at a different point. So why not take the best of all that and say, we're here. If you're in a cooperative for whatever it may be, we're here for you to help serve you in a way that helps forward your cooperative while also documenting it. So one of our biggest goals right now is simply documenting them. And in that way, we can then say, you know, hey, for example, if Jared's in a cooperative in, you know, Macosta County or whatever it is in, in Michigan, you've got the ability to set to somebody that's in that county to reach out to Jared through his documented cooperative and say, hey, I would love to either join yours or form one. So it, it starts that dialogue, and it's not just trying to, oh, well, I need to become a member of this organization to try to figure out a little bit of information about it, or I have to reach out to this. Like, there's one place you go, and it's the National Wildlife Cooperative for that information. Yeah, that's huge. And uh, I think that's a, a lot of people are going to benefit from that. A lot of properties, a lot of states, a lot of wildlife, for sure. So you had mentioned that you guys kind of wanted to not get into the banquets and, and things like that for funding. And I think you said you had some donations coming in 
How else is this organization funded, and, and what can people do to help out? The main way we are funded right now is through personal um, gifts by people that help start this. Through, um, you know, we are funded through if people pay for advertising on the website, through whatever that may be, you know, if that's how they want to pay for it. Um, you know, we're willing on our, our e-blast to do those things to help pay for this. Um, but really, it, it comes down to we've gotten several large donations from already established cooperatives um, that say, you know, we wholeheartedly believe in this, and this is the way we, you know, we want to help, you know, push this forward because we see the potential. And to me, that means more to me, um, you know, than anything else because it's telling me there's a, an uprising of support, an upwelling of support on the landscape for this. Um, sure. And and that is that that is a testament to the idea. And so I think that, that that's really the way we're going with it. And I want it to be that way because I, I want it to be something that people, you know, in, in a co-op in a sense, it's almost like, a, you know, when you think about an EMC cooperative, you know, you, you're the owner. You know, the, the people, the co-ops that are members of this are the owners, and they're the ones footing the bill for what they believe in. Um, so I think that that is, in a sense, like I said, the best of conservation there. And, and that's that's why we don't, you know, there's nobody that's a paid employee. There's no overhead. There, it, is, it is streamlined where the money there goes to, to getting the word out there. It goes to keeping the website live. It goes to um, growing the reach and, and then essentially helping the cooperatives that are members, you know, grow their cooperatives and create more cooperatives on the landscape. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's how it's funded right now. Okay. So let's say I have a co-op started in Ohio, and I just found out about you guys. How do I reach out, and, and what are the steps that I could take uh, to connect with you guys and, and go from there? And, and also, once you answer that question, let us know a little bit of what you offer to these co-ops, if you have different materials or uh, different things that you can provide to help them out. Yeah, so the way you would reach out right now is, is essentially just through email, um, nationalwildlifecooperative at gmail.com, and one of us, you know, one of the, the founding uh, people that helped out with this will reach back out to you. Uh, sometimes it's me, sometimes it's with people, but uh, we'll reach back out and get in touch with that cooperative. And then, you know, share if you have any, you know, specific goals or things that you think, like, hey, hey can you help our cooperative with X, Y, or Z? We'll definitely – take time to reach back out to you and, and let you know how that fits in with what we currently have. And um, what you're talking about, you know, what we have to offer is if you go to our website, www.nationalwildlifecoop.com, um, we are putting out about four articles every three months, so about 16 articles a year, um, through a collaborative effort amongst a lot of people um, to – provide information for these cooperatives um, to address any questions to help spur them in how to form cooperatives. We provide a basic, there's a, there's a link on the website that's called a basic co-op guide that we'll be adding to as we grow larger and, and have more input. And that's one of those things that I think Jared mentioned, uh, Morgan. Morgan's written two articles for that, and she's helped form a ton of cooperatives um, in Michigan. Um, I've written some articles there. So we, we're kind of slowly adding on to that and, and finding people that have either been a member of a cooperative help start cooperatives, um, currently are members, um, or have just had a lot of experience working with them or, or researching them to, to provide that information. So right now it's mainly information. The next thing that, we can, that we're, we're planning on, on providing is kind of hits on the point that I just talked about earlier is 
that national, you know, document on where they are. If we can start filling in the gaps there, then essentially we could have a county-by-county county breakdown of where these cooperatives are, and it gives you a list on who to contact. And that in and of itself is worth so much to put you in contact with not only myself or the other guys that are involved with this, but to put you in contact with somebody on the local landscape that can really serve as a mentor to help you form a cooperative or serve as a point of contact to join their cooperative. So that's what we're offering at this point. But we do pl- we have some some pretty cool things in the works, and I think uh, that I can't go into right now. But we we do have some other stuff that we're going to be offering in the future. But right now, that's that's where we're at as far as what we offer cooperatives. Um, you know, this you know, 2021. No, that sounds super interesting, and love to know what you have going on in the future behind the scenes. So please keep us posted on that. That'd be great. Definitely will do. I'll, I'll let you know. I just uh, can't can't go into it right now too much, but. Hey, that's okay. I'm a big fan of top secret information. Oh, yeah. I love it. Um, and you mentioned a couple things earlier. You know, here in Michigan, we, we talked about Morgan, and, and I've met Morgan numerous times. Awesome gal. And I've, I've presented at cooperative meetings with her, two of them actually, um, as a guest speaker, trying to get, you know, people involved with a cooperative. Um, one of One of my main presentations was try to, to try to get some projects or examples of projects that could go on inside of a cooperative. And and we'll get to that here in a minute. But you mentioned something about, you know, how Michigan is kind of more, more into cooperatives maybe than other states. And I think that's just due to necessity because we have so much hunting pressure and a very large, you know, whitetail herd and, and a ton of turkeys in our population here. But, with that large pressure, it is very advantageous to become part of a cooperative with one neighbor, two neighbors, ten neighbors, forty neighbors. And uh, we actually talk about that a lot uh, in Habitat Podcast number 73. I wanted to mention that real quick with Tony Smith. Um, Tony killed a bunch of nice bucks on 11 acres inside a cooperative. And um, I think that's where we talked about Morgan and Anna last, if I have to remember. But that that position that Anna and then Morgan had was actually funded by, I believe, partly QDMA, partly MUCC, which is Michigan United Conservation Club, partly the DNR, and then I believe Pheasants Forever was also part of that. So it was, <laughs> pun intended, cooperative effort, effort here to to bring this you know, position um, to light. And I can see that I know you guys are, are working for free on this at this point, but the need is there, obviously. Um, I think we had some funding changes here in Michigan, and we, we no longer have that position. But I think that uh, the importance of joining or beginning a co-op are, are there. And uh, maybe you could go into some pros and cons or, 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 you know, down that road a little bit for us before we get into some projects. Yeah, Jared, you hit on a couple of really good points there. And with that position, it, it is currently gone away um, with, that you were talking about with, with uh, Morgan and, and Anna. And I think that really just highlights the importance of, of the National Wildlife Cooperative. I mean, you've got not only, you know, without that position, you know, there's not really anything to connect those cooperatives to the state of Michigan right now, much less to the nation. And so when you have, you know, the vehicle currently here to utilize and you know in our re- in the research I did my, as my master's I think our highest we did a survey and our highest 
respondent rate was out of Michigan. So, you know, out of the five states we, we surveyed, that that state was definitely has uh, very eager landowners that want to be in cooperatives. So I think that's, you know, that speaks to that point for sure um, in utilizing the National Wildlife Cooperative to create that that list and that, that uh, you know, contact list for the state so that that can continue to grow and, 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 and thrive on the landscape. When it comes down to the pros and cons, like you mentioned, I think that, you know, there's definitely a lot more pros to cooperatives than there are cons. Um, and, and I'll start out with, you know, the pros are easy. Like when you just think about it just from a, a simple logistical standpoint, it is, you know, you get to know your neighbors. You get to build those relationships you might not otherwise get to build. Um, you know, you're increasing the value of your land um, through having it, you know, increase, you know, quality of habitat management. Um, you know, you're able to be more, you know, better connected to a community, which I think is really hard these days um, with a with all of the disconnect we see in, you know, uh, instant communication and social media. Like having a, an actual physical connection to community is so important. Um, and then, you know, the better hunting that comes from that, whether it's for pheasants or for deer. Um, through that management practice that you're promoting, um, you, you get to your goals quicker. So if you have <clears throat> if you have a goal, let's say trying to harvest four and a half year old deer or, or older, you know you're under you know some form of trophy deer management or QDM or whatever it is across the nation, you can get to that goal a lot quicker. Like yes, there's been multiple articles written until I'm blue in the face about how you can kill big bucks on small properties. I mean like you know with with Properties being, you know, cut down in size and multiple generations and, um, you know, dividing up farms and all that, you know, that's out of necessity. You have to figure out how to kill, you know, deer on, on smaller properties. But, you know, when you start working with your landowners around you, you get the benefit of possibly, you know, hunting on 1,000 acres, 2,000, 3,000 acres that are all under the same management regime. And that in and of itself, you know, I think is, is definitely a huge pro to get to that, that goal quicker because you can – you can definitely do it, you know, on a small property, but working with your landowners um, and having that small property, like you said, um, like 11 acres in the middle of a co-op, definitely increases your chances of that success re- happening repeatedly. So, you know, you can share your intel, and, and you and what we really saw was the biggest thing, and, and Anna saw this in her research as well there in Michigan, but we saw it on a national level, of an increase in satisfaction. So when we surveyed people and we said, how satisfied were you with the hunting on your co-op, Prior to co-op membership, you know, being a member in this cooperative, it was about 54% were satisfied. After becoming a member, it was upwards of 75, 76%. So it was a 21% increase. So not only are you getting to your goals faster, you're having all these, you know, extra um, pros that are happening, as you would say, you know, versus the cons, but you're you're more satisfied with the hunting experience. I mean, there's three quarters of people, three out of four. You know, this day and time, what do you see that three three quarters of people can say, hey, we we are we're more satisfied with this. Um, so, you know, like you said, the cons sometimes, you know, there's there's more work involved. Obviously, you have to con- communicate with your neighbors. It's more than just going out and hunting on a weekend. So, for some people, that can be seen as a, a con, and and then also it can lead to conflict um, if you're somebody that you know might not approach every situation a certain way. But, I mean, those are some of the few cons. I mean, there's, there's a ton of upside to this uh, when you think about it, you know, just from a holistic standpoint. And I, I know what you're getting at there. You know, some sometimes I just don't want to talk to people, period, right? I talk to people yeah. all the time, and, and sometimes you just 
want to go out there and enjoy yourself and, and be alone and use that as your therapy. I get that. Trust me. But you know how many times knowing my neighbors and having them on text message or speed dial has helped me out? And I've owned my property probably five years now. I would say over a dozen times between dragging a deer out, blood trailing, tracking a deer, logging, access, um, trespassing. I mean, talking to your neighbors first off. It's just amazing, and getting that communication going. And then if you can all get on the same page with the type of habitat you're trying to improve, type of game you're trying to, to harvest and, and benefit, I mean, it's it's a no-brainer. I know our friend Corey Francis, he, he started one in his area here in Michigan and has helped many others as well. Um, I'm going to send him your link to your website as well. But it's uh, – a lot of pros, a lot of pros. And then we get together, I think, once every two years at this point. Um, used to be once a year, but everybody brings their bucks in that they shot from the last year or two, and we kind of, you know, it's like deer camp all over again. It's freaking great. Yeah, no, I, that's, I mean, you just hit, hit the nail on the head with that. I mean, it, it provides a sense of deer camp and community that has been lost in the hunting culture. And it, right, it's hard right. to bring that together. Where, you know, right now we've got people in our cooperative. It's so cool to see. We're, the cooperative I helped form when I, I was 12 years old, and I, I helped form this cooperative with my dad. And we're at 1,600 acres now, which is not large in the grand scheme of things. But when you, you see that we started at 30 acres, um, you know, that's how it's grown from that. And we've got, I think, 10 or 11 landowners. But right now we've, we're at the point where we, we have three generations of people, you know, People my age are in their 20s and 30s. You've got you know, people in their in their 50s and 60s, and you also have people that are you know even in their 70s and 80s that are coming to these cooperative meetings that enjoy cooperative, and, and you get that sense of of heritage and you know deer hunting um, you know deer hunting camp, and with a shared sense of, of purpose. And I think that is so um, needed in the current hunting culture, and it's something that that benefits. It's not just for the benefit of of you know the hunting industry it's for the benefit of the hunter and for for the landowners to be able to be get a better connected to their land to be able to be better connected to their their neighbor and then you know be better connected to their community in, in general um so I, I really do see that as a huge upside that does not get talked about enough um but it's something that like you're saying is it, just you get that deer deer camp feel again and it, it it's really uh, something to see when you're there at a cooperative meeting and, and how important this cooperative is to people um, and how much success they've, they've gotten and how much happiness they get, you know, from, from knowing their neighbor and, and knowing how they're managing their land and, and being able to, to kind of bring back that sense of, of community. Yeah, that's a great point. That, that's one thing I bring up often. I do a lot of hunting in Ohio. I've been hunting over there for over 15 years now. And it's one thing we all say we miss is the, like the deer check stations and, and just going and like you said, having that sense of community and and just furthering the uh, camaraderie and, and, and keeping our way of life going, I, I think that's huge, and I'm I'm glad you touched on that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think that we've we've we in a lot of ways we've lost sight of a lot of things. You know, whether it comes to to looking for you know inches of antler and this and that, that's all great. But these things, this, these cooperatives, at their core, provide a way to get back to that in the framework of 
the current landscape and the current hunting culture, which I think really tie a lot together in what's needed. And that is through some of the information and, and some of the things that will be, you know, kind of coming down the pipeline for National Wildlife Cooperative, we, we really want to share that. And so I, I think that, that this is, you know, by far, not only can you <laughs> increase the connectivity, you know, of a landscape through habitat management, but you're increasing the connectivity of your, of your community and of, you know, the state and of these cooperatives through the National Wildlife Cooperative, you know, connecting them with people around them that are doing the same thing. So in a sense, it, it all ties back to that, um, you know, on a larger scale, not just within the co-op, but within, within your region. And, and that's what the National Wildlife Cooperative is about. Yeah, for sure. Now, I know you mentioned you had some top secret things going on, but uh, is there any projects you guys got going on right now that you can go into and discuss with us? Um, yeah, we've got some, we've got some things. Like I said, we, we do the articles. I think that there will be some more coming as far as, um, you know, how the, that information gets disseminated. And that's all I'm going to say. Um, I think that we, we've got some other stuff going on, um, as far as communicating that story that I'm talking about. And, uh, I'm, I'm really excited for, for 2021, 2022, because, you know, right now, you know, we don't have any, like I've said, full-time paid employees. We don't have it's, – it's all a cooperative effort, and we are um, – you know, I think this thing is really is really growing, and I think it can can uh, really hit on a lot of the, the things we talked about. But that, that's all I can go into. As far as projects, um, I know you said, you know, kind of what we're doing. I think that, um, you know, from a, from a habitat standpoint, we can increase – habitat projects on cooperatives and we've seen that through some of the research um and i'll say that for a little bit later i don't want to get you know put my too far in front of my skis here but uh yeah i think i I can't go into too much of that unfortunately right now yeah that's no problem so uh we're going to a a different angle on this as as far as co-ops go what are some of the projects that you're seeing getting accomplished and uh what do you see is working with those different projects some of the co-ops are doing yeah, so I, I'll uh, let me back up just a hair there to kind of frame this in in a way that that'll make sense. Um, you know, with the research we did, we realized that cooperatives were doing a lot of habitat management, and that would through the research we looked at aerial photography and we looked at what the current cover types were. So as you both know, you know Jared and Brian, this you know you can look at cover types from aerial imagery and kind of know what disturbances happened there what got them to that, you know, what type of management got you to this cover type? Um, was it, was it fire, was it thinning? Was it fire? You know, vegeta- what, in what way did vegetation management get you there? And I think some of this speaks to some of the projects that we've seen on co-ops. I mean, I've got a cooperative um, that we work with that's, that's out of Missouri um, that, that is purely a prescribed fire cooperative. And they, you know, help other landowners put in fire lines or burn their property, um, they help them, um, you know, teach them how fire is beneficial. Um, they will, you know, try to try to plan fires, you know, with neighboring landowners and, you know, make these, you know, fire blocks bigger, th- those kind of things. And so we have cooperatives down here in the south that, that will do that, but they keep a, a Google map layer of what's been burned and it's shared, you know, across the co-op of, you know, kind of where are we burning this year and what rotations are we on and those kind of things. 
So, you know, there, that's an example of some, some co-op projects that are happening, you know, right now. Um, you know, is one of those things where you can you can definitely have some, some impact where you have a, a crew of people go out where multiple landowners will go help the other landowner um, on their property and knock out bigger chunks, you know, on a weekend. So instead of you spending two, three weekends, let's say you – it's kind of like a work day for a camp, like a hunting camp or a hunting club. Um, but you work there on your own property, and it helps the, the neighbor. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've seen lately is really people understanding, especially with the timber markets we're seeing and the prices we're getting down here in the south, people working together on their thinnings. Because, um, like, for example, sometimes you might not have, you know, the pulp price you want for southern pine, um, but if you have a large enough acreage, it makes sense for that, that company to bid on it or to take on that project. So you have the ability to really start looking at multiple landowners, you know, in a complex, per se, start thinning all at once um, that, that wouldn't have otherwise happened. Um, so that, those are kind of the things that we're seeing right now. Um, and, and then really kind of at a basic sense, you know, just the use of equipment across property boundaries. So if, you know, if one guy in the co-op is a farmer and, and he has the equipment to, you know, plant corn or soybeans in rows or, or somebody has a seed drill or somebody has this and, and, you know, let's say that I don't have that, but I can provide the seed, you know, I'll go buy the seed and, and you can, you know, I'll give you a couple, you know, 20 bucks, 30 bucks for, for gas or whatever, diesel. You know, those kind of things happen on a day-to-day basis and are not documented. It's just kind of handshake deals. And, and if you look at our logo, that's that's one of the main reasons why we put that hand, that two people hand, you know, with a handshake. Like, these things are happening on the landscape, undocumented, and, and it's just kind of a, you know, neighbor to neighbor, you know, we're going to help each other out. Um, so those are kind of a, from, from A to Z, kind of the, the basic, the most basic level to kind of the most intense, you know, projects from, from a habitat standpoint that, that we see going on. Yeah, that's a great point because uh, I'm not real familiar with the co-ops and how they work. I know a lot of guys that are in them and, and some of the things they accomplish, but the main things that come to my mind are like, you know, just trying to connect habitats within a, a similar area to try to improve the wildlife. Taking it to the next level, like you just mentioned, that that could make a difference of, you know, the guy with only five acres wanting to get a select cut done. Correct. Can't get anybody to come out, but all of a sudden, if you've got six guys over a couple hundred acres that want to get it done, the next thing you know, they start getting loggers showing up and, and getting the work done that might not have gotten done before. So that's outstanding. Yeah, I mean, that, that at, its, at its core is I – mean, I've seen it personally. Um, you know, we've, you know, done a timber sale um, on uh, the farm I'm on before that, that, that's actually accomplished that, you know, with multiple landowners around it. And, and it makes sense. I mean, you got to think if you're on 30 acres, it's going to be really hard to attract somebody out there unless you have some really high-quality timber. If you're, you know, if you're in a great market and, and if you have a lot of factors working against you as far as the markets go and what you have out there, that's a way to get that habitat management done um, and get paid for it. And that money can go back into the cooperative, uh, you know, at, at a kind of the upper level of kind of the most um, involved cooperatives and kind of the highest level I think I've seen, you know, cooperatives will do where they all pay in, um, you know, a certain like dues every year. And they will use that money to bulk buy seed. They'll use it to buy new equipment that is, you know, under an LLC that's for that cooperative. 
Um, and there's some really involved ones. I mean, we had a couple in our research that were 20-plus thousand acres in South Georgia that I think one was 23,000 acres of 60 landowners. And, you know, they all pile in for a, you know, here's here's our money for the year for, for food plot seed. And the one guy has a contact and can, you know, get a super great rate. And everybody ends up, you know, getting cheaper food plot seed because they're buying by the pallet um, for the co-op. So, so all those things can happen. And, and I think that, you know, even the littlest thing, um, you know, is great. But some of these large-scale habitat management projects, are incredible to think about what the, the, the utility of cooperative management can be. Yeah, the cost share thing is huge. Like you mentioned, uh, the sky's the limit on that as far as, you know, maybe getting a pond installed or or uh, larger projects that, you know, maybe somebody won't be able to afford on their own. So that's, that, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, if you just think about, like we, I'll, I'll tell you two examples. So for one, one example that I've personally been involved with, we had a, a co-op member that had a, a skid steer, or a, you know, like a bobcat, and he was able to put in fire breaks for for us. And in return, you know, we were able to go over and, and you know, help out with planting a food plot for him. You know, so it's like, you know, just kind of these handshake deals, um, even on a small scale. Um, they add up when you think about the, the sheer acreage. I mean, these cooperatives in the, that were in the research, um, I think they, the average, like I said, was like 5,600 acres. So I know that Michigan's are a little small. I think they're around 4,000 acres was the average. But in Georgia, you know, the average co-op acreage was like 9,900, almost 10,000 acres. Um, so, I, you know, you can see that across the landscape, the just the exponential effect that those small projects can have, and then think about the large-scale projects. We saw, we saw, uh, we what we did with the research is kind of without getting into too much into the weeds. We we looked at land cover, and like I said, the uh, what the the cover type was. So was it? Uh, you know, we split it into 18 different categories. For example, I'll just name a few, like early successional habitat, um, wildlife openings, or food plots, and uh, open evergreen, which would be like your really low basal area, um, you know, we like to call them down here like quail woods, you know, those managed exclusively exclusively for quail, those kind of things. So right. take a lot of active management, you know, to get there, those kind of things. And we were seeing increases on the average based on we were comparing inside cooperatives, so inside the boundaries, compared to their adjacent landscape. So what is the the average landscape looked like around these cooperatives, and then what's happening inside of them, we could tell, compare the difference. And we were seeing, uh, you know, a 4% increase, 4.5% increase in early successional habitat. And when you multiply that by the average size of 5,600 acres, think about how many acres of early successional habitat that equates to. I mean, that those are large numbers um, in the scheme of things. And I mean, for example, 10,000 acres, that's 450 acres extra inside the cooperative of early successional habitat that's not found in the adjacent landscape. So, you know, that in, in Georgia alone, you know, it's one of the few states, you know, it's our southeast representative that would have those that open evergreen system. But we saw an 8% increase. That's 800 acres on a 10,000-acre average co-op in Georgia. So it's not just these small handshake deals. It's it's a lot of active habitat management that's going on that would not otherwise be done. And these cooperatives and cooperative 
uh, membership are spurring that and, and acting as a catalyst for, for increasing active habitat management on the ground. That's, that's the importance. I mean, that's the take home of why cooperatives are important from a habitat standpoint, you know, with this being a habitat podcast. Absolutely. Uh, do you see many guys with leases getting involved in co-ops or is it mostly private landowners? Well, when you look at the demographics of, of our survey, we surveyed around 2,000 um, members of cooperatives. Um, 67% were private landowners that lived on their property, roughly, you know, within a mile or two. Um, so they were there all the time, so almost 70%. Four, 14, roughly 15% were in hunt clubs. Um, so, yes, okay. they are. Um, about 18% were granted hunting rights from the owner or they leased it from the owner. So okay. one of those three categories was what made up cooperatives, with obviously the biggest chunk coming from landowners that lived sure. extremely close and can do habitat management. And that's what you're seeing on that, you know, increase in active management. But, yes, I mean, it's 15% roughly was in hunting clubs. So it's not just your private landowner. There's there's a, quite a bit of hunting clubs getting involved. And even if it's just through, you know, the, in the research it was deer management cooperatives. So I want to make that distinction. It was, it was mainly – Deer management cooperatives with 98% of them practicing QDM or trophy deer management. So this is gotcha. kind of, you know, spurred by deer management. But in a sense, if you can take what that act, what that deer management is doing and, and use it as a, you know, a catalyst or, or a, you know, a vector to get that kind of management on the ground and, and take that enthusiasm and put in, put in something that's going to help other species, game and non-game species, that's the home run. I mean, that that's that's the right, right. message here. Yeah, I, I was just curious because uh, I got a lot of friends that lease property that don't own it, and uh, they try to do a little bit where they can, where they're allowed. And uh, this, is just, this is just another angle for even leaseholders to get involved. You know, you don't have to own the property to make a difference and, and to hook up with other like-minded owners to, to get some stuff done. For sure. I mean, you're just looking at it. The way I like to look at co-ops is like a puzzle. And, you know, each property on the landscape from an aerial view is a puzzle piece. And if you can add your puzzle piece, which is your hunting club, to that that overall picture, I mean, you start filling in the picture for everybody else around you. And even if you can't, you know, legally do any active management because of, you know, not owning it, um, you know, you are helping provide enthusiasm for everybody around you to get more involved in whatever way they can, and you're going to benefit from that. So I think Good point. that that talk, that, yeah, that, that really, you know, having that Nate, that landowner, the 70% of them that live there, feeling more comfortable with, with taking that extra, you know, step to do X, Y, or Z as far as habitat management goes because they feel more connected to their community. You know, you don't have to do a single acre of food plots on your lease to help them feel more invested and for them to do that work that ends up helping you um, in return. And that's not in a selfish way, but just in a, in a um, you know, community way. So, Hunter, setting aside the, the awesome 67% of landowners who live on the property and are, and are doing this and kind of staying on Brian's point here, are there any pitches or ideas or maybe – you know, information that you recommend or maybe on your website uh, that would give a lease, a leasee or somebody leasing a property something to say to the landowner to try to get them to, to get on board? Or maybe it's the same question a different way. 
if you're trying to get your neighbors to become part of your cooperative and increase their habitat potential, are there some, some pitches or conversation points that, that you guys recommend? Well, I can just talk to it personally. We don't really have any, you know, pitch on our website currently for that because – Might be a good one, yeah. For sure, no. I, I'm sitting here taking notes. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that's a, a great pitch, and it, it definitely hits a segment of hunters and of, of uh, you know, co-op members or potential co-op members. I would say, like, the, the pitch would be whether it's, you know, in two different ways you phrased it there, to, to the, from the leasee to the, to the owner – um, or from the from the the leasee to the the surrounding community, I think that the pitch is, you know, we're not we're not your hole in the bucket, right? Like if this is your management goal, we're not going to be working against you, and that in and of itself provides a sense of security to everybody around you. Like, oh, it's not the person from out of state that's coming and leasing this, and they're ruining our co-op potential, right? So. It's like just being commun- communicating about what your goals are, even from a, a leasee at a at the base level, provides a sense of, of of comfort to the people that live there all the time that that you are at least invested in it. Maybe not as invested as somebody that lives there all the time, but you are showing them that that you are not going to be you know the reason why they can't form a cooperative. That you want to be proactive. Um, I think that that too often everybody, you know, and it's kind of getting back to one of the, the cons we talked about earlier of, you know, it's, it's more work than simply hunting on the weekends. Um, you know, I was part of a hunting club before and we were part of a cooperative and it was simply just us saying, you know, Hey, to the landowners around us, we are, you know, we're doing this type of management with these goals in mind. And how does this, you know, align with yours? And, and more times than not, they were doing the same exact thing, but they thought that, they heard all the gunshots over on us, and we were just, you know, smacking deer all the time. And it was it was us just trying to hit our doe harvest goal. So it's like, you know, here is you know a, a perfect example of just you know how communication can help. So I would say just from a, a pitch standpoint, um, the main pitch is just saying you know being just being open with an honest line of communication and saying you know we're here to help, even if we can't help with the habitat management, um, you know here's what our goals are and, and just being up front. And now that doesn't always happen. You're going to have people, you know, you see it and you know, they'll say, well, I've talked to my neighbors. And they didn't want anything to do with it. Well, yeah. You're only going to hear about that on the bad ones. I mean, all these good ones are out there on the landscape <laughs> working and making handshake deals and you don't hear about them because there's no problem. Um, so I think that's, you know, a key, <laughs> how you gauge what's, what the success rate is uh, of those kind of conversations with, in, in that situation. Well, let's, let's take that subject offline. Maybe you and I can um, come up with some ideas on, on that, how to how we do it here, how Brian does it, where he's at, and yeah. maybe we can help you guys uh, come up with something there. love to work on that with you. Yeah. Um, now, I, I want to get into some fun stuff here as we wrap this up. I want to know, and I didn't prepare you for this, I want to know if you have any great stories of where being part of a cooperative helped a hunter achieve his goal of either chasing that big buck down, getting the kid on the first turkey, something something kind of awe-inspiring where you were like, dang, this stuff's working. Um, is there anything that comes to mind that, that you could uh, maybe tell us a quick story on? Yeah, I'll get, I've got two stories if you've got time. I've got, we have time. Hit him. 
perfect. Well, you know, the first one is a cooperative I work a lot with. I've worked with them since about 2013, 2014. They're in middle Georgia, and uh, it was one of those things where there is multiple generations that are getting to hunt on that cooperative. And the the best part is when the cooperative was formed at the very first co-op meeting, the, the guy that formed the cooperative, he was um, in his late 20s. He got all of his landowners together and said, hey, let's do this. Let's form a meeting. And his wife had just had their first child. Well, now that child is, you know, six or seven, um, probably about more like five or six. But regardless, um, you know, that child is now getting to grow up as part of a cooperative. And their hunting and their experience on that landscape is totally different than what their father grew up with hunting and learning on that landscape. And so seeing the long-term, you know, effect of how becoming, a, you know, a member of a cooperative can can impact, you know, future generations in such a short amount of time is extremely, you know, it's just heartwarming to see that um, because – they went from, you know, if it's brown, it's down, to harvesting 140 to 150-inch deer every year off that co-op. And to know that that has, you know, that he has the satisfaction of knowing that his son or daughter is going to get to grow up, you know, in, in this, you know, landscape that was, that he dreamed of by working with his landowners around him, that just, you know, to me is, is kind of, it's, it's a great story. And, and it's, it never gets told. Because it's just kind of happening, and it doesn't doesn't make it into field and stream. It doesn't make it into quality white tails. It's just one of those things that, that it, it's hard to put a you know to put that into such a, to, to look at a situation and know about it long term, and to see that happen is, is just very rewarding. Um, so that's story number one. Um, to get to story number two, I think you know I can personally attest to it. This year, you know, we've been a uh, I helped form a cooperative when I was 12, and my dad was one of those, you know, if it's brown, it's down. Like, that's how I grew up, and I was the one that spurred and said, hey, you know, I want to shoot a little bit bigger, you know, buck every time I shoot one. That's my first year was a four-pointer, nothing wrong with, you know, <laughs> with those things. But, but uh, you know, as I got older, we, you know, I haven't shot a buck there on our family farm in, I think, a decade, and... The, the last one I killed when I was, was when I was 14. It was two years after we formed a co-op, and he was you know, three and a half years old. So we watched and watched other people in the co-op that killed, killed mature deer. And, and this year I finally um, was able to connect on a deer that we had three years of history with. It was a five-and-a-half-year-old. So, you know, just personally, I get to see other people succeed with cooperatives and see those stories. But I also have been a part of a cooperative and know the feeling of getting to, you know, stand, you know, with that, you know, hold that five-and-a-half-year-old deer, have my dad, my wife, my mom all there and say, like, this is why we manage on a cooperative. This is why we put all this time and effort into this. And I love getting to see our neighbors harvest mature deer before I did because, to me, that was their ticket to buying in. And after all that work, almost a decade, we finally were able to harvest one ourselves on our own 30 acres that – was part of that co-op. So, you know, those are two different sides of that, but two definite testimonies to the success of cooperatives. 
I love it. Yeah, excellent. I love it. I think uh, you hit on something we haven't talked about yet is leading by example, right? If you're going to go to your to your neighbor and, and tell him what he needs to shoot and how he needs to do his business, probably going to come off the wrong way. But if you if you can lead by example and, and maybe take one buck every every few years in an area that, that needs some passing or, you know, like you said, you're, you're able to to inspire people by some of the goals you're accomplishing as a group, as a cooperative, that speaks, you know, a lot further than than the former where you just walk in and you need to shoot three and a half year olds or older. Like I see, I think that just leading by example, you know, being a leader, showing the trail cam pictures of deer you pass to your neighbor that probably shoots them uh, might get him thinking a little bit about, huh, maybe I, maybe, you know, Brian isn't shooting all my two and a half year olds over there, and and I can I can let him go, uh, you know, something along those lines. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's awesome. Yeah, Jared, I'll, I'll hit on it real quick. But I think that you know my biggest, the biggest thing I've seen, and I've seen it with successful cooperatives in particular, and I've used it personally, and I try to talk to other cooperatives about this is if somebody in that cooperative, if a neighbor, um, another hunter you know, shoots one that's, you know, it's a let's say it's a three-and-a-half-year-old deer that you've been passing on. I don't go up to him and say, man, I've been passing on that deer. I wish you wouldn't have shot it. I'm saying congratulations. Like, we, you know, I'm not going to come off as the person that is trying to put you down. I, and, and all I say is, hey, you know, I, I'm glad that that is what you, you know, that you're happy. As long as you're happy with that deer, that's what I'm, I'm happy for you. And my, my goal is, like you're saying, to lead by example of, well, you know, here's what I'm doing. And hopefully after a few years of them either shooting a three-and-a-half-year-old or me showing them pictures of one that, let's say, our goal is four-and-a-half or older, for example, of me passing on that three-and-a-half-year-old year, maybe they start showing me and, and saying, saying, hey, I'm not going to be able to shoot that four-and-a-half-year-old unless I pass on this one because I have to get them to four-and-a-half for them right. to be out there. And so – I always look at, you know, some people, they see their, their their target deer get killed by a neighbor. And if I see my target deer get killed by a neighbor, I go to my, I've told my dad this before, I say, I'm so glad. You know, we put a ton of effort into it. I have a ton of history with this deer, but I'm so glad they harvested it because that is a testimony to what we're doing. And I'll go talk to them and say, hey, here's the pictures of this deer. We were all, this 1,600 acres was working, you know, without you on it to produce this deer. Here's how we did it. We would love to have you as part of this because you just saw the benefits. And I think that that is a way to come about it and, and use it as a kind of an olive branch to somebody that may not even want to be a part of it, that just got to share in that success and bring them aboard without just chastising somebody or saying, oh, they don't deserve it or those kind of, like having that mindset is the difference between successful and unsuccessful cooperatives. That's fantastic. Great, great information. Great way to wrap this up. That was awesome. I do have one more question for you, though, Hunter. Um, we ask all of our listeners this question. It's very scientific. Uh, yeah. What is your <laughs> favorite tree? And this could be for habitat, for hunting, could be for, for what you like to plant. Anything in general, uh, we get a lot of different answers, and usually there's a good story behind each one of them. When you're out there 
in the woods because you're in the woods a lot. Yep. What is the your favorite tree? Well, you can have two. You can have two. I I will I'll break it down. Um, let's do deciduous versus non-deciduous. Correct? Sure. Um, my favorite evergreen would have to be a longleaf pine. Um, just from a cultural significance, historical significance, habitat management significance, and what that species has gone through and the decimation of its range to its use in U.S. history, naval history. Um, I think that it embodies a lot of things that, that it's seen across its history. And I love it from an aesthetic value. I love it from a habitat management value with prescribed fire and the way it is um, created to withstand fire and it needs fire, fire-dependent species um, for, um, you know, especially the southeast and, and, and the, the, the old south, you know, that, that the coast. Um, and, and then just the look of a longleaf pine when you're looking at it as a mature tree and it's different stages. I mean, just in every every way, it's it's a romantic species. And I, I love that that tree species in general. And I may have to put it as my favorite. And I, I, I hate to say that. As I, I grew up outside the longleaf pine range, but I've worked with it so much that it just – it is a, a beautiful species. From a, from a deciduous standpoint, I would probably um, have to go with a beech tree. Um, wow, and, that's a new one. Yeah, so it's not really great for habitat management um, in a lot of regards, but I, I really do love the fact that there's there's two things there. I, I, I've got this ingrained memory. We I grew up about 30, 30 minutes from the capital of the Cherokee Nation um, in New Echota in northwest Georgia, and we were, you know, the land that, that my family farm is on was, was part of the Cherokee Nation. We're so close to it. We had multiple large beech trees on our property, on the neighbor's property that had Indian carvings on them from that time. Wow. So we have, I have that connection to always seeing these four-foot diameter beech trees that were used as navigational markers or historical markers um, for that time gone by. And I think that uh, that is what has ingrained that as one of my favorite species. And I also like the idea of, you know, they have these mass crops. And the longleaf does the same thing when it comes to seeds, but – having it, the ability to to show, like, you know, you don't have to put it out there every year, but but work towards something and then, you know, the fruits of your labor coming out, you know, in these mass events and, and trying to, I think, has a lot of a lot of significance for the way I, I go about my work and, and my life. Um, you know, you do a lot behind the scenes and then, you know, it comes out and not everybody has to know everything all the time when it comes to the amount of work you put in or, or what it is when it comes to that. So, for that reason alone, I think I would have to still stick with longleaf, and that's my favorite. But there's two two species that hold a special place in my heart for sure. You know that was well done. I appreciate that. And those are both new species to the favorite tree question. And uh, I would agree with you that uh, not everybody always needs to know about all the hard work behind the scenes. It's more about what comes out and and the kind of person you are to to agree with that and to bring that up. I I already feel like I know you so. That's great, Hunter. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate the amount of info you shared here with us tonight. And um, how can we find you if we want to join up or, or help support? And, uh, you know, where are we going to see you at in the future? 
Yeah, so I, I mentioned it earlier, but the, to, to join up or to find us, it's www.nationalwildlifecoopcom Um We are on social media, Facebook, Instagram. Um, if you are tech savvy and, and go to Instagram, um, we are at National Wildlife Cooperative on Instagram, uh, National Wildlife Cooperative on Facebook. Um, you can reach out at that email, the uh, National Wild so National Wildlife Cooperative at Gmail dot com is the info tab, and uh, yeah, so that that'd be the best way to get in touch with us. Um, for now, if you have any questions. If you want to sign your cooperative up, um, you know we we are not going to <clears throat> we are not going to give the location. I, I will say this: I probably should have said earlier of your cooperative away. So I know a lot of cooperatives are like, "Hey, I, I, we have all this great work going on. You know, put us in contact with people around us, but don't you know show exactly where our properties are because good point. Are, yeah. So <laughs> so we put we just put a pin on our national map there on the on the website. Um, we have a bunch of co-ops that I've got to get on the website right now. So if you go on there and you'll see a couple, <laughs> it's it's going to be, there's going to be quite a bit that we've been kind of building up here. But if you go on there, it's just the lo- the, the closest local city. Um, so there is no no worry of us giving away your location or where all your hard work's get taken in so somebody can take advantage of it or, you know, do that in, for malicious intent. Um, but we uh, that's how you get in contact with us. So I, I would say, and one of the guys um, will get back in touch with you, and we will, uh, you know, put you in touch with whatever information you need. Or if there's somebody we already have a contact for, and a, a co-op in that state that you're interested in getting to know, or a local co-op, we'll, we will get you in touch with that. So that's how you get in touch with us. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on tonight and, and for your time and. Uh, we look forward to work with you in the future, hopefully, and and yeah, you know, keep us posted on anything new and up and coming you guys have. And uh, again, thank you. Yep, thanks, Jared and Brian. Appreciate it. And uh, what y'all are doing there with the Habitat Podcast is great. So I appreciate you having us on, and uh, definitely look forward to working with you all in the future. Thanks, Hunter. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, T-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. Thank you.